we began this sermon of the Buddhas uh, a while back. We're moving very, very slowly through it. Tonight we'll go over some ground that's, uh, I hope, quite familiar to most of you, to all of you who are practicing here. Uh, but so you see where it comes from, the commentary that's needed to bring this teaching of the Buddha to life. The sutra began with uh, a three-month retreat led by the Buddha. Uh, And during this retreat, this particular teaching on using conscious breathing as a technique, as a medium, as a method to attain enlightenment was presented. Uh, The retreat went so well that it was extended for one month and many people came to join the Buddha. And what we have is a record of that retreat, which sketches out 16 contemplations of the breathing. 16 uh, somewhat different but interrelated ways of viewing breath. And there's a build-up. It starts, uh, in many ways, it's like a great symphony. In that it starts very slowly, can start very slowly laying the groundwork with talking about things about establishing a body position, uh, little by little, uh, familiarizing ourselves with the breathing. The first four contemplations have to do with beginning to know the breath and the body, the relationship to the body, how what happens to the breathing affects the body, how we begin to learn the different qualities of breath, deep and shallow, fine and coarse, And in the process of getting to know the breath and the body, we begin to establish a foundation for going more deeply into the sutra. We move from the body into feelings. We have not done this, those of you who are new, it's just that I'm giving you a sense of uh, where the sutra goes. Uh, We use the breath to come to know feelings. And then all the varied mind states themselves. And then finally, the last four, it's a kind of... uh, It ends in a kind of crescendo, kind of uh, triumph of the human spirit with enlightenment coming out of this work as we begin to introduce wisdom. The last four have to do with vipassana, pure and simple. So we begin to get to know the breath. As we begin to get to know the breath, that naturally takes us into the body, feelings, mind, in short, our, our self as a person. Every time the bell is struck, we stop what we're doing and just turn to the breath for about three breaths or so. And as we become more familiar with ourselves, this mind-body <coughs> process, we begin to look at a level that goes beyond content, the content that's quite familiar to us, our story, where we've been, where we think we are, and where we think we're heading. And rather, we begin to look at the mind-body process in a more universal way, that independent of what our story is, uh, we begin to see certain truths, certain natural laws that we learn not only on the breathing, but on everything else. 
uh, and it ends in the in handing back to nature, as one uh, one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, put it. Uh, we're basically walking around as thieves. We think that we're we own things. We've been stealing from nature all this time. And at the end, we realize we don't own anything. We don't own our body, except conventionally and legally, of course. We don't own our body, our mind. And as we give up that game, the burden of being an owner, or struggling to be an owner, and hand it all back to nature, it's called dropping the great burden. Uh, and we're starting very, very slowly, so please be patient with me. I want to go into great detail. Uh, when we left off last week, we've already covered that we, we now know that we're breathing. We breathe in and out, and that sometimes the breath is deep, and sometimes it's shallow, and the breath varies in its quality. How is your breath at this moment? Just You can listen and turn to it and just get a sense of where you are. The beginning teachings on the breathing largely have to do with calming the mind, with developing what we sometimes call samadhi, a concentrated mind, a mind that is one-pointed, unwavering, steady, a mind that can face what's in front of it without wavering. It's also sometimes referred to as shamatha or calming, serenity practice, tranquility training, calm abiding. These are all just English translations, but essentially what the early stages of the practice are about and the early way in which we relate to the breathing have to do with calming and steadying the mind, bringing it to great calm, great steadiness. But of course we don't begin that way. In fact, we wouldn't need this teaching if our mind were calm and steady already. We would just read what the Buddha said, and we have these laser-like minds, and we just examine ourselves to see if what he's saying is true. And then we uh, you know, walk out of here free. But we have to begin at the beginning. So pretty much for all of us, I haven't met anyone yet, and it's not just Westerners, it's all human beings. We have to, st- we have to begin with what we have, and what we have is usually a very wild mind, a mind that's all over the place, that is full of preoccupations and obsessions, even addictions. It's not a, too strong a word. Like thinking. We think sometimes when it's totally inappropriate, when it's not even to our advantage. Thinking is beautiful, too, when it's used correctly. So this is where we start. Uh, for me, uh, my own practice benefited you know how sometimes uh, you hear a line and it helps you, uh, you remember it for the rest of your life, it, and you've maybe heard thousands of teachings and all kinds of things. It, it's interesting, even inspiring, but then in one ear and out the other ear. But now and then, just the way in which something is phrased or something that you see affects you deeply and is with you. Somehow you keep re-understanding it over and over, over many years. Uh, for myself, once help me understand this process. Once watching a dog, a friend's dog, uh, someone would pick up, uh, it was a plastic bone, 
and throw it, and the doggy would just run after it, get it, and bring it back. Then they'd pick up the bone again, take the bone again, and throw it, and the dog would run it. And then different people would take up, and we'd all take turns. And at a certain point, you know, I've seen this, of course, thousands of times, we all have, but at a certain point, I was staggered by it. I mean, I just looked at this dog, no matter how many times we threw the bone, it would just run after it. And maybe in the old days, the bone at least had a little bit of meat on it, but now it's a plastic bone. So, you know, and the teeth were being exercised. There was nothing really there. The dog would run and bring it back, run and bring it back. And finally it hit me, it's my mind. I'm just watching my mind externalized. Doggy mind. <laughs> That's how my mind is, just running after the bone endlessly. And of course, it's, it doesn't say it's a bone. The content of the mind is all decked out as something quite fascinating and important. The contrast at a certain point became quite apparent between doggy mind and let's say a lion. Let's say if you, uh, I don't know this firsthand, but let's say if we took that same bone and we threw it, and we went to the jungle and we threw it and there was a lion. Can you imagine a lion running after that bone? I can't. <laughs> you know, you just throw it, oh yeah, I just want to get that bone and please you. The lion would ju just look at you as if you were a fool. Actually what the lion does, we know this from, I know it from some things I've read, it look, when things happen, it looks to the source. So the, the lion would not run. If the lion ran after the, the bone, it would be a dog. It wouldn't be a lion. It just stays there. And it looks to the source. Where is this being thrown from? Okay, so it struck me that what we're engaged in, or one metaphor, one way of talking about it, is how to, how to, be, to grow from being a doggy, having doggy mind, and just running after everything that the mind throws up, to a lion, an inner lion, that is steady and is not impressed in a certain sense. It's got dignity and strength and it looks very, very carefully at what's happening. And that seems to be what our practice is about. The early stages of Anapanasati, the simple breathing in and breathing out, noticing the length of the breath and so forth, which is quite familiar to many of you. Its value is in learning how to make that transition, how to uh, enable us to have a mind that is really steady, a mind that we can count on. In the Thai tradition, Thai forest tradition, they uh, see the different levels of stability that you can come, that is, uh, to get to lion mind. They say you, it, they view it more like a house. They'll say like you can have a house built out of twigs, or bamboo, or wood, or now cement, bricks. In other words, each succeeding house is stronger, so that when the elements are difficult, you have something that you can go back into for a stability. And the strength of that house, of course, depends on the strength of the materials that you've built it with. And they view the beginning mind would be a little bit like what is a street person for us, people who, are, who don't have a home, who are vulnerable to the weather, who are vulnerable to everyone's looking at them, who uh, are vulnerable, whose possessions are potentially vulnerable. And they see the process of, of developing the mind, of 
developing this kind of steadiness of mind is one of developing an inner home, which is, to varying degrees, a stable home where you can drop into for rest, rejuvenation, to develop more strength, so that you can go outside. Outside, for our purposes here, are the later contemplations, which when we begin to examine not just the breath. For those of you who knew, although we, the sutra is called the full awareness of breathing, it isn't just about breath. It's about using the breath to calm oneself and then to use the breath as a point of stability, a kind of house from which to examine every aspect of our being. We'll come back to this in later discussions that even that last house, let's say a stone house, itself can become like a bone if we get too attached to it. That is, if we get too attached to the calm and the concentration that comes from simply being with the breathing in a continuous way. Uh, Because that incapacitates us. It prevents us from developing wisdom. We get stuck in calm. So we become a calm fool. Very, very calm. But we're no wiser than before. Maybe a little bit. Okay, so let's begin at the beginning. In the sutra, the Buddha talks about you recall, and uh, I don't think I have to quote it, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, noticing the in-breath and the out-breath. So already we have a question. Where? Where do we watch the in-breath or the out-breath? Now, if you read all of the teachings of the Buddha, teachings on the breath are scattered throughout his teachings, and in two places, very thorough treatment of the breath, and this sutra, of course, is, is where it is, those two renditions of this sutra. In no place does the Buddha specify where, he, where you should attend to the breathing. Now, uh, I'm not a great scholar of Buddhism. I've gone into it a fair amount, and I've also consulted many world scholars, and everyone agrees. There's no place where the Buddha says where you should follow the breath. However, those of you who have worked with varying teachers, somehow we all develop very strong confidence in what the Buddha really meant, including myself. I'm pretty sure what the Buddha really had in mind. But I'm going to review all the different things that are said. If you hang out with Burmese teachers, at least from certain schools, they're more likely to say the abdomen is the place to be with the breath. And sometimes in Sri Lanka they'll often say the nose, and everyone will say, of course, the nose too. In Thailand, they think very, very highly of the chest. <laughs> if you follow the breath, like, like when I, uh, I first came to Ajahn Mahabua's place, uh, he was very flexible at the beginning. He said, where do you want to follow the breath? And I, and I said, well, I work with it at the nose. And he said, that's fine, but when it gets really concentrated, well, you'll know the real place to be is in the chest, in the heart. This is the locus. In Buddhist psychology, this is the physical locus of the human heart, not the blood-beating heart. And then there are some who say the whole breath, that is, they don't specify it at all. Well, which one is right? Uh, I've listened to quite a few teachers on all these, and I've also experimented with all of them, and I've also listened to you for many years in your struggles. And it turns out that they, they are all correct. Everyone's right. But different people have to find their w- where, to, where to attend to the breath. Because finally, and I hate to 
in a sense, undermine the sutra. The sutra on the full awareness of breathing really, finally, doesn't have anything to do with breathing. Really and truly, the, the conscious breathing is, is uh, uh, in addition to the fulfillment that it provides in and of itself. It's about attention. It's about the development of mindfulness. And so whatever helps you to do that, if, it's, if you find that you're drawn to it at the nose, at the chest, at the tummy, fine. Uh, you all know from your own experience, and it changes, of course. Now, this applies, by the way, to daily life as well. If you go to certain monasteries, and I've asked these questions for all of us, uh, when you're paying attention to the breath, where should you pay attention to the breath when you're in the middle of da- in daily life, not in sitting, not during formal practice? And in many places, they'll say uh, the nose tip. Buddha Dasa will say that. Or, uh, some of the Burmese teachers will say that. Um, and yet, others will say, even in daily life, the abdomen is a very stable place to be. Uh, and there's another persuasion, which I'm very sympathetic to, which is as you work with the breath a lot, as you become more and more familiar with breathing, as your breath starts to become truly conscious, and it does through practice, uh, you really don't have to specify any place because the breath becomes so vivid that you can just be in touch with it. And it will vary from time to time, but that variation does not uh, become a problem in terms of your ability to concentrate. Now, if you're relatively new or if you don't feel that your breath is that vivid, then, you know, and you're drawn to a particular place, then by all means, stay there. But what grows out of that, even if you start at a place, for example, if you, let's say you're uh, a nose specialist, when the mind gets very, very concentrated, you can feel the breath extending from the nose down into the body. Have any of you felt that? You know, you're not trying to, uh, to see how deep the breath goes into the body, but you can feel it, even though you're officially at the nose. You can tell that it's, you can feel uh, uh, breath sensations down into the abdomen. You can feel the rib, ribs expand. You can feel it in the back. And as some of you know, as the practice unfolds, you can feel the breath throughout the entire body, breath sensations, without straining. It's just you feel it. So um, I'll have to leave that up to you. If we have time tonight, we'll go into the daily life aspect. Um, experiment and see which holds your attention. See which seems to be most graceful. And it may vary from situation to situation. But finally, uh, you're going to uh, need to, if you keep working with this practice, to have some real confidence that where you're experiencing the breathing is a place that you're drawn to, that overall there's some interest. Okay, let's move. We're moving very, very slowly, assuming that you now have a place to put your attention. For one, it may be the abdomen, for someone else, the nose. 
even the simple in-breath and out-breath. How do you do it? And there are many pitfalls, as all of your questions throughout the years of practice here show, in which we all have experienced, those of us who practice. So let me summarize a few of the basic difficulties that come up as we uh, learn to just be with the simple in-breath and out-breath. We're just beginning the sutra. The in-breath and out-breath is not even the first contemplation. It says the yogi crosses his or her legs at the foot of a tree or in the forest or in an empty house, empty space, and breathes in and breathes out. When they breathe in, they know they're breathing in. When they breathe out, they know they're breathing out. And the very first contemplation and the second have to do with noticing when the breath is long and deep and noticing when it's shallow. Okay. One, um, in a sense, barrier that we all face is the issue of control. When we sit down, fold our legs, and begin to follow the breath, it's a rare person who doesn't notice that they're controlling the breathing. Controlling it, perhaps, to make it longer or to make it shorter. Perhaps if you've read books on the Dharma, it's more dangerous. You hear that, oh, in a, when the breath gets very deep, the body is more relaxed, you can sit longer, sittings are, are more comfortable and not as painful, the mind relaxes. So there can be an unwitting or unconscious or sometimes uh, it's pretty conscious, uh, an attempt to make the breath into some ideal, ideal breath. The instructions are to just allow the breath to be the way it is. But despite that, we can't uh, seem to help to contr- uh, control comes in. And it's, it varies for each person. Some people will uh, try to suck in a little bit more breath on the inhalation. Sometimes it is a clue to your character type. Greedy types do that, sometimes. They also have a hard time in the letting go. So when, on the out-breath, it's sort of like, wait, 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 no. To kind of hold back on the out-breath. Well, we all have our little variations on it, some of which have to do with perhaps traumas that we've experienced in our life, ways in which we've been hurt emotionally, which of course affect the nervous system, or physical uh, difficulties, traumas to the body. But the lesson of learning the art of allowing, to simply allow the breath to unfold, the way it wants to, to surrender to it, is absolutely essential. Because what we're learning in this first phase, the whole section on uh, being with the breath, the whole first first few contemplations, uh, have to do with learning how to come to rest in the breathing. Finally, how to come to rest in the breathing. Now, how can you come to rest in the breathing if you're busy controlling the breathing? You're calculating, scheming, trying to uh, make it turn out a certain way. Uh, sometimes what happens is, and it, can be, it has its humorous side, is people who don't control the breath didn't have a problem at all until they came to Vipassana or Zen uh, teachings and heard all about the breath and all incredible things that are going to happen, the Ken shows and uh, amazing enlightenments and stream entry and... Uh, radiant personalities and just all kinds of things happen, at which point the ego learns that there's some cash value in the breath. It didn't know that it was anything uh, special for all these years. Now and then we get a cold and we appreciate the breathing. But by and large, we're, there's not been too much stock taken in the breath. But now we suddenly find out, are you kidding me? The breath is incredibly important. Okay, I want a piece of that. And the ego gets in and it starts to take over where it's not even needed. Okay, some of you, I know, have experienced that. 
Well, uh, the, our old friend mindfulness can see all of these things. And in the seeing, uh, there's a letting go. It's really another a way of looking at it is we're learning the art of surrender. Surrendering to ourselves, really, to a certain natural rhythm of the breathing. And uh, coming to rest in the breathing. You can't come to rest in the breathing if you're goal-directed in a certain way. Again, we read books and we hear talks, and it's also quite obvious that as our ability to pay attention to the breathing improves, or as our, as our awareness of breathing is more continuous, with fewer interruptions, as that happens, the mind begins to become very calm and concentrated. That's a law of nature. At first, there are big gaps. We're aware of one. We're aware of an in-breath and an out-breath, and then the mind runs after a bone. You can be for about five minutes, and then we come back. Little by little, uh, we're able to be with more breaths continuously. And when the mind is distracted from the breathing, we know it more quickly, so that we don't get lost in what we've run after, in the bone that we've run after. Uh, we immediately—it's like an alarm goes off. I'm not with the breathing, and we come back. And so we begin to see that there's a progression. That is, the more continuous our awareness is, the more the breath settles down, and we can feel dramatic changes physically and emotionally. And then the books promise extraordinary things that can come out of that simple process of turning your attention to the breathing, learning how to stick to, to the breath in a more continuous way. So the breath then starts to become more of a means to an end. And even the way we talk about it sometimes, it's inescapable. We talk about this is shamatha, or calming, or samadhi practice. And we develop that to, to develop the foundation for insight. So we want to get good calm, good concentration in the mind, so that we can then investigate and develop wisdom and free ourselves. So it becomes a means to an end. And yet, those of you who have been here, you know that uh, the art of the practice is to take each breath exactly as it is. In a sense, the, mean, the breath is both a means and an end. It's true that the breath leads somewhere. That is, the ability to breathe consciously uh, leads somewhere. But that somewhere, you don't get to that somewhere unless you can be fully be with each breath while it's there. Now, if, if a corner of the mind is taken up with some ambition, some striving, some gaining idea, then that defeats its own purpose, so that if you want to attain some of these wonderful states of concentration, which do exist, the best way to come to it is to surrender to each breath just as it is, so that each in-breath is the most important thing that's happening in the universe at this moment. And then the next, the out-breath is, and then the next in-breath. And more and more, seeing if the mind is ahead of itself, if it's using the breath to get somewhere else that's more valuable. Uh, some years ago, I studied with a Soto Zen teacher who taught, who they often will use the breath a lot, just as we do. And he was also a, a master of Zen archery. And he was talking a lot like the way I am right now. And one day, uh, one day he, uh, the whole Sangha gathered together uh, he was going to give a demonstration of the Zen archery. So there were quite a few people, I would say 150 or so people, all in this open field. It was the summertime. There was a target set up. 
and he was in full Japanese regalia, and there was his special uh, regular uh, robes and hand guards, and I, can't, I don't have the, the vocabulary to describe it, and an elaborate ritual and ceremony preceding the moment when the arrow would be released and hopefully hit the target, bullseye. And so there was a long build-up to it with chanting and all kinds of things. And finally, the moment arrived, and we could feel the tension. You know, we were there with him. Finally, he pulled the arrow back and held it, it seemed like, for an eternity. And we were all holding our breath, waiting. And then he just aimed it and just shot it up in the air. <laughs> and there was a moan from the crowd. You know, we didn't understand what he was trying to say. Uh, what he was trying to say, I think, I'm pretty sure, because we talked it out with him, I mean, he had a good laugh at our expense, <laughs> is that the target is everywhere. Uh, and, but mainly what he meant, the target's right here. I pointed it, because I've had tie conditioning, so I point to the chest when I say it. Um, what he was trying to loosen up was our, especially in the West, very strong, very strong in order to mind. We're always doing something in order to get something else. We're always, we're, if we do A, then we'll get to B, and then from B we'll get to C, and ideally if we can get to A, from A to Z, without, and skip all in between, that would be the best of all. Just get a PhD, forget about kindergarten. Just be handed it. And so he was sabotaging that. And it was very frustrating to see. It really was the emotion that we went through. Uh, I mean, and it was very, it was quite a relief after when, he, when he explained it to us. Okay. Uh, the dog runs after the bone. As you know, those of you who have tried to do this practice, okay, to, to uh, evolve into a lion means you have to really stay put. You are rooted right in that with each breath. You're looking right at each breath. You fuse with each breath. You become one with each breath. That's the whole art of concentration meditation. More and more, you disappear into the breathing, and you leave all of these bones behind, all the preoccupations, worries, plans, fears, memories, all the stuff that makes up the mind. And so, and I know this is familiar to at least some of you, when we're sitting, uh, we're, w the mind is constantly running after something that seems very, very important. So how can we develop this ability to stick with the mind? There's no one way. But certainly, uh, the art of coming back is necessary, since we leave so often. If we don't learn how to come back, it's going to be a very bumpy, not to mention exhausting, journey. Because we have to do it a lot. So, we're with a few breaths, and the mind runs away, runs after a bone somewhere. And then we come back, and we come back, and we come back. So, it's very, very important to get into the spirit of repetition, <clears throat> to see the... the um, it's, this is not easy for us, particularly in modern people. We are uh, brought up on variety, complexity, having many different nice things to get to. And what we're being given an opportunity to do, this very simple exercise of turning towards the breathing and sticking with it, is an opportunity to take one thing and to do it really well, to give it really real care and respect. Our breathing, it's not a small thing. It's, it's life itself. 
that we're now attending to. Over and over and over and over again. Now, when you get into the spirit of repetition, and you can learn it on the breath, you can also learn the art of simplicity, which is again something uh, desperately needed in this period when everything is so complicated, and even the medicines that we use to take care of complicated problems are themselves complicated. And often it seems like we need simple medicine, not complicated solutions. So even though it's difficult for us, because we want much more variety, we want more color, and the practice at first is breathing in and breathing out until you're blue in the face, seems. But at some point, if you don't enter into this spirit of repetition and see the beauty of it, it's a little bit like uh, making bread, kneading the bread. Well, let's put it positively. If you're able to do that, it, will, it can transfer to everything else that you're doing in life because we have to repeat a lot of things over and over and over and over again. How many more times do we have to brush our teeth only for them to get uh, dirty again? How many more times do we have to go to the toilet and take a bath and put our clothes on and take them off and put them on and take them off and put them on and take them off. How many more times do we have to make our bed only to mess it up and then we have to make it again and then mess it up again? Do you know how many times we do those things? It's staggering. It really is. Now, we handle it by becoming like a machine. You know, we just become, auto, we go on automatic pilot. We joke about it. Okay, this training is an attempt to stay fresh Stay fresh, and we're given this breath as a, as a training ground for it. By the way, do you know how many times I have to give the breath instructions? <laughs> and I, I've, all, I've already given them. I've been teaching for a while. I don't know, but I don't know if I can count that high. And for the most part, it's fresh. When it isn't, in other words, just following your breathing, breathe in, breathe out. When I hear it that way, a kind of metallic voice, you know, sort of a radio announcer voice or something, I know I'm not being mindful. It's like an alarm that goes off. But when we're awake, when we're attending, when we're really hearing what we're saying, it's not boring to me. Some of you have felt sorry for me. You know, you've come up and say, boy, you have to give those instructions. Oh, we always have new people coming. And, oh, you want to learn how to meditate? Oh, okay, let me describe how to follow the breath. There's the in-breath, and people will hear it. Wow, poor guy. <laughs> But in Thailand, we got, I remember, a, a dramatic training in it. Each meditator is given a, a little meditation house. We call it a kuti. And all of them are interconnected by pathways. And the leaves keep falling in, in Thailand all day long. They just keep dropping off, dropping off, dropping off. And so twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon, everyone gets a broom, and we all sweep our path. You have a couple of paths in the area around your kuti. But as you're doing it, you're not even finished. You can already see the leaves are starting to cover. You finish one area, and there it's already. The leaves are starting to come again. It's even worse than making your bed. At least you make your bed, and it stays tight you know, until it's time to go to sleep again. Here, you're still doing it, and the work that you've done is already being undone. And so we would get teaching on that. There was, uh, Ajahn Chah was very big on that. He would, he would emphasize that if you can learn how to enjoy sweeping the path, even though while you're doing it, the work that you're doing is already uh, spoiled, you can uh, do anything. And if you think carefully, you'll see that this is our situation a lot. 
So when we get into daily life, and if, if we have time, we'll go back to that. So the simple coming back to the breath over and over has a lot of uh, value to it, especially if we can come to it in a very gentle way. Now, one of the worst obstacles to it is that we have a difficult time. We always want to hit the target, unlike the example that I just gave of shooting the arrow in the air. So when our mind leaves the breathing, when it departs from the breathing, even though the instructions are to stay with the breathing, we blame ourselves. And we then think of ourselves as having weak concentration, very bad samadhi, I'm a bad yogi, I'm no good, everyone else here is concentrated, I'm the only one here who can't do it, and so forth. Am I the only one who's had those thoughts? <laughs> I know that you know, it's, it's very common. So one important thing is to we have to get to know that mind. Because if we have to come back, if you're going to stay with this practice, hundreds of thousands, millions of times. I'm not exaggerating. Sorry, probably the new people will never... <laughs> you can already leave if you want. I understand how this must sound. Okay. There must be something good about this practice, so why do we do it? The coming back has to be done without blame. You have to understand that we tend to see the coming back as interfering with our ability to really practice. If only I didn't, my mind didn't wander, I could really practice. But if your mind didn't wander, you wouldn't need to be here. I mean, the reason you're here is because your mind does wander. Okay. So on the coming back, you have to understand that the coming back, rather than seeing it as interference, it is the practice. And at the beginning, it's a large part of the practice. So just enjoy it, surrender to it, and just ease back, make it a dance. It's meant to be done consciously anyway. So rather than like pulling it back, like you know, a child who's done something wrong, get back over here. It's not that way at all. There's no coercion in it. There's no violence in it. It's, let's say, gent- gently escorting your attention back to the breathing a hundred thousand times in one sitting. Can you do that? Well, probably not, because the mind will get angry and frustrated. And then we can see that, though. We can see how the mind really just target mind. It just wants to have bullseyes all day long, and anything short of that doesn't make sense. It's not worthwhile. Okay. Other ways, uh, so that, of course, the main way in which we move from doggy mind to lion mind is just by practicing, by coming back over and over and over and over again. The other way is to begin to see the real value of the bones. In other words, unfortunately, well, maybe not, the doggies seem to have a good time. So it's just my, my problem with, with doggies running after bones compulsively. Mm-hmm. Um, when you begin to see the particular bones that we run after, now, if yours are really fruitful and fulfilling and wonderful, full speed ahead. I mean, just think all the time and you know, fantasize all the time and plan all the time and reminisce all the time and you know what the mind does, have, just have a ball. But probably that's not true or you wouldn't be here. There are better places to be than here. And even you could be at a nice movie or whatever. So in a sense, we already know that a lot of the, con- the content of the mind uh, is suffering. There's a lot of suffering in the mind. Now, for those of you who are new, uh, the core of the practice is to look at those bones carefully. But right now, I'm only speaking about one aspect of the practice, which is calming and concentrating the mind, which requires weakening the compulsion that we have to run after the productions that the mind uh, puts out. And so beginning to see, uh, sometimes when you hear the mind worry about something, 
300 times. But when I don't know, maybe when I get there it won't be there. But how about if, it, but maybe when I get there it won't be there. But how, well, maybe when I get there, you know, or he said, and then she said, he said, she said. As you sometimes you can't help but tune into the mind, and you begin to see that these projects are not exactly the highest priority in life. They don't seem to go anywhere. And if you're, if you if you stick with the practice, the day comes where you begin to see that a very simple-minded activity like breathing in and out, breathing in and out, uh, brings a certain kind of incredible fulfillment. So that it weakens the hold that all of these bones in the mind have on us. And we, so we needn't, we say, thank you very much, I'm not going to run after it this time. I, I understand that one, I've seen that one, how much you hate the boss, yes, I know that one. And just come back, just come back. In the uh, Yiddish language, there's a term called yenta. It's now become kind of popular culture, but for those who don't know what it means, it's kind of a gossip. Someone who's into everyone's business and knows what's going on in the neighborhood and knows which children got into which colleges and which didn't and knows everything. And it's always poking around and trying to figure out. Now, most of us, perhaps all of us, we've all gone through schools and we've been well brought up and then we've, we've learned in Buddhist circles about right speech. So outwardly, we don't behave like yentas at all. But if you look at your own mind, my mind, just one big yenta. That's all it's doing with itself. It's just talking to itself, undermining itself, trying to improve itself, pointing out how it used to be better, pointing out how it can be better. Uh, but then the outer presentation, of course, is not that because you know that wouldn't be appreciated by people. We're too sophisticated, especially in Cambridge. But nothing has changed. In other words, I've never, I haven't left the old neighborhood at all. Okay. At least my mind hasn't. Okay, so this is the beginnings of seeing what some of the breath work is about. Let's see, 820. Thank you. Okay, bringing the practice into daily life. Uh, when we teach uh, the sutra, it's usually brought in uh, either at the point, very early, it's necessary to bring it in very early in the commentary on the sutra, because uh, we leave, you'll all be leaving soon, go into daily life. And so we have to at least begin, even though the formal practice goes through quite a bit of development, uh, it's meant the breath is meant to be used to help us right from the start in daily life. And so I've already hinted uh, a little bit about it, and there's really quite a bit to be said. And throughout these talks, and certainly in the question period, we'll be coming back to this time and time again. But I would like to say a little bit more tonight um, to emphasize the importance of uh, of using conscious breathing in daily life being central to this particular approach. <coughs> Before talking about the breath itself, 
the, the way in which the breath can help us uh, live more fully in daily life, um, I feel it would be helpful to set the stage for that, to talk about uh, the importance of mindfulness in daily life, period, whether you use the breath to help you or not. Again, in Jewish mysticism, the, uh, some, uh, some of the Hasids uh, would say that, said, that each person has been entrusted to a small, a certain section of the universe to take care of. Uh, so it's each one of us has a, no one. We all have a job. No one is uh, a, a true job. So that whether it's a corner, corner candy store or the entire United States, each person has some part of the universe that's entrusted to us for safekeeping. You might want to reflect on what your piece of the world is. It could be maybe you know a husband or a wife and a child, it, whatever it is. And right now we all have a piece of that universe and. Uh, for me to take care of it means for me to, uh, to the best of my ability, express myself clearly about what I know uh, to try and help you understand it. And, and your taking care of this place is for you to listen as carefully and to see if any of it is significant for you. And if there are confusion or communication barriers for us to work together to, to work that out so that as best we can, we come as close as we can to understanding one another. Because that's, this is where we are. This is our world right now. And the practice is always right now. In fact, there's only now. There's nothing else. We talk about a lot of other stuff, but finally, there's only now. If you realize that, it gets much easier. Okay, to kind of uh, provide a somewhat simplified scheme, and some of you have seen this, and we've used it in classes and retreats. Whatever the situation is, step number one would, would be, what is my correct situation? Or is, what is happening here? Okay, let's, let's for the moment say this is a talk. So it's talking and listening is, is what this situation is. What, what is my job here? It's to listen carefully. Uh, so the, the first step is to, to know where you are and to, uh, usually life, there's an intelligence built into life and uh, the situation tells you what really is called for. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's ambiguous or confusing. So that, would, that what would be suggested then would be to pause, to understand, and sometimes, you know, we feel that. We may go into a, a, a situation, maybe we're new, we don't know how to relate, we don't know what to do or where to go or... Uh, and so it's good to see that, just to see that I don't know what full awareness would be. I don't know what mindful living would be in this moment. But by and large, we know it. It's quite uh, straightforward. When you get into a car, we know that driving is what's called for. Just drive. When we're washing the dishes, uh, wholehearted attention on washing the dishes. So step number one is just understanding that, what, what's asked for. Now, that it happens very quickly in daily life. So I'm making these distinctions. It's nice and simple here. But in life, it happens immediately, as you know. But even thinking about it this way can help out. Okay, so granted, we now we, we grasp the features of a situation. And in those features is intelligence telling us what the best way to act is, where our uh, involvement is called for, where attention, presence is called for. 
So then step number two is to direct our attention to that. If you're driving the car and your mind wanders away from driving, so then step number two would be to come back. It's not different than, than the practice with the breath. When the mind wanders, come back. When the mind wanders from driving, come back. When the mind wanders from washing the dishes, come back. If someone is speaking and you're listening to them, but then you wander away, come back. Right? So that's step number one. What is the situation? Step number two, uh, to pay attention to it. Step number three, when the mind wanders, come back. Step number four, do step number three a billion times. Because that's what we're going to wander a lot. The mind is not present. To begin with, the mind is constantly running after bones. Inwardly, even if we look, we are very practiced, especially as adults, in looking like we've got it all together and we're, you know, carrying out doing what we're doing. I'm an airplane pilot, I'm a professor, whatever it is you do. I'm a dentist. In the meantime, it's amazing, you know, what's going on is a lot. And if we're pulled away a lot, often, over and over and over again, it's a clue that we have to investigate that which is taking our attention away, if you can. Sometimes you can't. If you're in the middle of something very, very important, let's say driving a car, and over and over again something pulls your attention away, well, you can't uh, suddenly, oh, I think I'm going to investigate that and go into it very deeply as uh, notice uh, what it's all about, see that it's impermanent, that it lacks self. Be, uh, you would do that, but there'd be, probably be no one there to find out the results because you'd be dead. So you can't do it, but what you can do, and it was you have to drive, what you can do is make a note to yourself. And that later on to see this, something, uh, something knocking at the door over and over and over again. What is that about? Some unfinished business. Is there something that we need to do that we're not doing? Is there something we're doing and it's time we stop? It's usually one of those two, often. So that's a rough way to look at it, but there are all these refinements in this, and uh, the way I've just presented it, some of you may take away a kind of a concentration, a kind of uh, a mechanical, methodical scheme for just fully attending to what's going on in life. That would lose the richness of it. Because what I've been saying is a kind of uh, plain way, a very plain way of talking about having respect for life. You could say the entire practice, everything we're learning here, and everything the Buddha said has to do with infinite respect. Uh, We have respect for certain things, but not for others. And if you look carefully, you'll see that. And I would say all spiritual work is this. I don't see it as uh, uniquely Buddhist. And what we're learning, what someone like Mother Teresa is teaching us, is to have infinite respect. Even the poorest of the poor, in the last few minutes of life, is worthy of total respect. Nature is worthy of respect. The meal we eat is worthy of respect. Each breath is worthy of respect. So it isn't some kind of concentration game or some kind of concentration exercise. What we're talking about is the quality of our life. Because whatever we encounter, that is our life in that moment. If you're here right now and you've realized, let's say some of the new people, you realize, I'm not interested in this stuff. What did I come here for? And you really know that, but you've been very well brought up. You know, so you have to wait until the session finally ends, you know, so that you can kind of, oh, wow, what a relief. It's okay, you can go right now. Because your life is, more pre- is very precious. And if you see this is not for you, I understand that. Nothing is for everyone. 
Okay, so the teaching is talking about this capacity to stretch infinitely. We see our limits. We see that we have respect for certain things and not for other things. And little by little, finding out that really what it's about, just as the, the Zen archer who shot the arrow and the target was everywhere, uh, but really it's, it's at us, we find out that wherever we are is precious because that's where we are. That's where our life is. That's all we have. All we have, in other words, life keeps insisting on being just the way it is. Have you noticed that? It just, it's obstinate. It just keeps rolling on, insisting on being just exactly the way it is. And we keep being in that something or other all the time. So how can we learn how to open to that? How to fully uh, give our best to wherever we are? And uh, the fact that we have preferences gets in the way. The kinds of learning can be very subtle sometimes and small ones. I'll give you one I learned just a few weeks ago. I was washing the dishes upstairs. I, I live upstairs. And for many, many years, as far back as I can remember, since childhood, whenever I wash the dishes, I whistle. Okay. I don't know why I do, well, I do know why I do it. I found out why I did it. Uh, but I started to notice that all the songs are, they're like from uh, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. For, you know, uh, some of the songs I whistle will be like commercials that when I was a teenager. You know, or popular songs when I was a teenager. And I just whistle, and I, I don't mind washing the dishes. I kind of enjoy it, the warm water and all that suds. It's, I don't have resistance to it. But then suddenly I started, it was very mechanical. That is, no sooner does the tap get turned and I start it, the whistling starts. I don't whistle any other time, to my knowledge. Okay. So I went into it, uh, and I saw that it's, it traced back to when I was a teenager. Uh, my sister and I would divide up uh, alternate nights. I would wash the dishes one night, she'd wash them the next night, and so forth. And I didn't like washing dishes. I had much better things to do. I was a much more important person. I had basketball, baseball, and all these other things. And instead, what do I have to do? Wash the dishes. Okay. And I would whistle to kind of get through it. It would basically take my mind off the dishes so that I could uh, survive. Okay. It's not survival anymore. I actually enjoy washing the dishes, but the whistling is still there, and it still, to some degree, was dividing my attention. I wasn't fully present. Now, as soon as I saw it, I stopped whistling, and I became much more present to washing the dishes. I was pretty present, but not, not fully, because the whistling was kind of eating away at my concentration. And as soon as I stopped whistling, I was much more fully present. And then once I identified the whole thing, then I was actually able to start whistling again, and it was okay. See, it's not saying you shouldn't whistle. It's how I was using whistling. I was using it to, you know, it was like a life raft, get me through this. Dear God, how do I get through these dishes? But once you catch on to it, it's not that whistling is bad or that this has to be a grim exercise, only one thing and one thing only, or just the dishes. It's not in that spirit at all. There's play in life, and there's play in mindfulness. If this practice isn't joyful for you, there's something off. Now, of course, we have to face suffering because we have suffering. But the overall approach has got a lot of joy in it. And so uh, that's this, in a sense, trivial example. Can, you have your own, I'm sure. Let me leave with a, a teaching, what I mean about preferences. Maybe it can alert you to something. And maybe between now and the next time, 
uh, those of you who wish to can take it up as a practice or reflect on it and see if it, it's helpful in, 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 uh, in terms of the quality of your life. There's, to me, a very, very wonderful teaching, and I would advise you to, to, to read this. It's a teaching on cooking by Dogen, who is a very great Japanese teacher. And these are the instructions to the monastery cook. And on one level, there are instructions about how the cook should behave in the monastery. A lot of details, some of which are not relevant for our situation. But on another level, it's a, a profound guidance on how to live. And I'm not going to go into it in all detail, but if those of you are interested in, the li- in our library, uh, Refining, Refining Your Life by Uchi Amaroshi in the Zen section is a commentary on it. And we have other translations of it. What Dogen was saying, to kind of lump a lot of things together, he made points like, when the emperor is coming or an important personage is coming to the monastery, and of course you have very good ingredients because this is a, an important time, an important person's coming, it's an important time, and you have wonderful ingredients. So then the cook, of course, is all perked up, very alert, makes all kinds of creative food, Etc., etc. But then that celebration ends, and the next day, just a bunch of scraggly monks who you've been practicing with for months and years, and all the good foods used up. You just have maybe just some old rice and some seaweed, and these people, it's not the emperor, and it's not anything special, and suddenly you're not attentive very much at all because there's nothing in it for you, really. See, we're, we're doing things for a payoff, in a sense. And so, what Dogen is suggesting is that whether it's the emperor or some important person uh, or the most ordinary uh, just monk who you know a long time, whether you have magnificent ingredients or just leftovers, boring, uninteresting leftovers, uh, you give it wholehearted attention. There's no difference. No difference whatsoever. You totally uh, hand yourself over to the task at hand. You do it with total affection, appreciation, uh, respect. And he uses an example which won't be too helpful unless you're steeped in Buddhist imagery. He says that even if Manjushri himself, Manjushri would be like an archangel. I don't know if those of you, I don't want to do it injustice to Christianity, but let's say Manjushri is a kind of personification of wisdom. Very, very high bodhisattva. Very high. Since wisdom is crucial to what we're doing. He says if while you're in the kitchen and you're doing, doing the meal, if Manjushri himself, it would be, let's say, like St. Francis of Assisi comes in while a Catholic is in, you know, like, you take the broom and you just whack him and run him out of your kitchen. Or it's, you have something else to do. You have something much more important to do. Anyway, so on one level, it's about food. But don't we all do that with people? We have important people who are worthy of very important treatment. You know, if nothing else, when our parents visit, isn't it amazing how clean the house gets? You know, just sparkling. But then when, you know, Joe and Jane Schmo come over, it just, we don't even make the bed. And, you know, there are all kinds of people who, some people who have something for us. Maybe there's money to be made or sex or something important. So we court favor and we're very attentive and we're very careful and very respectful. And then there are just lots of people who come in and out of our life who don't have that kind of significance. And how are we with them? 
How are we with the, the, the world of animals, nature, and so forth? So it starts off with something very, very simple, but what it's alerting us to is this infinite respect. And I would say that finally that's what mindfulness is about. Uh, to be mindful of something is an act of generosity. That means you are recognizing its existence. You are turning towards it. You are giving it recognition. And of course, the greatest beneficiary is you. Because how you, uh, you're making up your life as you go along. All of us are doing that. And so the degree to which we respect what's happening, that of course is the quality that we're living in. It's our own quality. So it's finally, it's about us. So the, talk, the, the arrow is being shot and the direction is very, very clear. Okay, any questions? Please. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned the what? Yes. Make this different and more pleasant for me. Yes. And I'm just wondering how we can go about life not... I mean, it seems like sometimes we really do have to run after that goal. No, it's not saying to not uh, set up the most favorable conditions for you in your life. It's not saying that. But the starting point is to be in touch with how things really are. It's, one of, it's more a matter of obsession when we become obsessed with things. Uh, for example, no one, it, it's not saying uh, if you come home and it's cold because you left the windows open. Well, this is the way it is. It's just this way and just freeze. No, you close the windows. You see, it, it, don't take it to be, uh, that, that's not what I was getting at. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, but I said sort of, maybe you could refine it a little bit more. Okay. Uh, uh, live as intelligently as you can, but then there, uh, there are. But why, in the process of living, give each situation. In other words, it's asking you to live in reality. Uh, even in that in that day, step number one would be to be in touch with the cold and how it feels to be cold, because the windows are open. It doesn't follow that because you experience that that you fatalistically just collapse and let yourself get a cold. Uh, you then. The intelligence, in fact, it's more intelligent. Your behavior can be much more wise if you're in touch with what's actually happening. It's just the opposite. Do you see what I'm getting at? The degree to which you are really in touch with the way things are, not the way in which you want them to be, enables you to behave in a way that is appropriate. So in that case, uh, you, for example, let's, take, let's make an, an absurd example. Let's say somebody is you know, absent-minded professor type and they're busy solving a mathematical formula, and they come in and the house is freezing, but they don't notice, and then they get the flu. Okay, so that, that isn't what, what is being suggested. They were not in touch with what's going on. They were living somewhere else. Okay. Uh, don't if you generalize any of these examples into an absolute truth, it won't work, because it has to be understood in a particular way. So you walk into the house, it's cold. The degree to which you really feel that it's cold enables you, if you can, to do something about it. Close the windows, put on a robe, etc. So that's intelligent action that flows from directly experiencing exactly the way it is. And it keeps going like that from moment to moment. See, it's, I wasn't preaching fatalism. 
what I was talking about is wherever you are, really be there. Really do it. Does that make any more sense? It, it makes sense, but in, in more like sort of interpersonal examples, when someone crosses your path, does something you're angry about, and yes. you're satisfied with your relationship with that person, yeah, it's you want to do something about it, there's, there's two, you can be in that moment and, and be aware of what they're doing, or you can sort of go off on this other path of, Jesus, how, you know, how can I change this, and how can I... Yeah, you're making it, uh, if you don't mind my saying so, you're making an unnecessary dichotomy. Let me, let me give you a sense of what I mean. This is something uh, reported to me over a, p a long period of interviews with, with uh, a couple who, uh, some years ago, both meditators and having a terrible time with each other. And so in interviews, I spoke with one and then with the other, and we also met together. Finally, it took quite a while to unravel this. What we discovered was both of them uh, had... Uh, were deep into practice. And they also had a lot of problems with each other. And the way they handled it is each one would go into their little meditation area and they'd meditate and they could get concentrated and calm and even look at the problem. Understand it, let it go, and then go out into the day full of energy and happy again. And then the other person could do something like that as well. Maybe at different times during the day. But what we, what we saw was that the relationship was not sitting on the cushion. Do you see what I mean? You're saying either you're aware of your stuff or you do something about it. What I'm, it's not that meditators don't do anything about their relationships, quite the contrary, but you come from more intimate experience. In other words, you actually know if there's resentment, you know it. And then you find a way of sharing it with the other person skillfully. You have a better chance of doing that if you're mindful. Typically, that isn't what we do. We just react. You know, there's resentment, we explode. So it's not either you act or you're mindful. I would say uh, the, the practice has to do with the art of mindful living. Living is an important part of it. This is about our life. It's not just about being a picture postcard, you know, and just sitting, getting to wonderful spaces, and then forget about all the rest of it. Now, what they did, they misused the practice. They did very well in an individual sense. If they, by going into their meditation, to their meditation cushion, and they were at a point where they could do this, get very concentrated, and they weren't even repressing that they were unhappy. E examining it, seeing it impermanent, it arises and passes away, it lacks self, let it go, great, and then go out and just really happy. But then they'd come back and then they'd start it in again. What needed to happen is the, the relationship had to sit on the cushion. It was that process that they had was something that they weren't bringing into the, uh, putting a Dharma frame around, a meditative frame around. Um, I was just wondering, I have what I call a um, spirit guide, and I see different parts of the universe, but a lot of times it's, it's repetitive. I see the same things, same cities, and I was wondering, could that be a repercussion of what's happening to me on Earth? What's happening in your mind? Could that have something to do with what's happening to you on Earth? Well, I see different places and stuff. You know, yeah. It's very dynamic. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, probably it's a mixture of what's happening to you here and your past. Do you think I'm seeing my past or I'm seeing my past? I don't know. What do you think? I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, let, let me say, from the point of view of this practice, it's not all that important. I don't mean to diminish your, uh, your, what you're seeing. Um, or to diminish psychic abilities, which come sometimes from this practice. 
Okay, I understand. Now, you, then, in general, I don't know you. First time we've met, right? Please be careful, because it's not, there's nothing wrong with psychic ability, because psychic ability, like any other ability, can be very helpful. You can help yourself and other people. But if misused, you will be the one who suffers the most, because there's nothing the ego loves more than to, to, than to find out that it's got special knowledge that no one else has, or that very few other people have. And so people will gather around you, they'll be very... And I see Atlantis, and I see you, in a, and it might even be true. I'm not denying that. I don't know. But what, what this path is about, and you're here, so I have to speak from this frame of reference, it's about human liberation, freedom from suffering. Uh, you can be very, very psychic and tormented. I know. You can be very uh, free and fulfilled and not psychic, not have those abilities at all, none whatsoever. There are great masters who didn't have those skills. So now, why do you ask the question? Is there anything, if you can help me what's in back of it, maybe I can... I just want to um, fill you out, you know, what type of insight you might have into Yes. Okay, now, from the point of view of psychic work, there may be valuable information in what you're seeing, information about you or, let's say, a client, somebody who's coming to you. And that information, if properly used, could help somebody. From the point of view of this practice, it's just stuff. I don't mean, in other words, if you're, if you're in, sitting in meditation, if you're spending your time really uh, very, very concerned with the content of what you're seeing, it has value. But from the point of view of this practice, it wouldn't be this practice, that's all. And it's your choice. From the point of view of this practice, you would see it like any other mental production as something that arises and passes away. It's impermanent. And uh, we haven't gotten into that night, tonight. But the deeper aspects of the practice have to do with the seeing the true nature of everything. And so from that point of view, it's the same as anything else. It arises and passes away. You would be with it while it's there. You'd be mindful of it. And then when it's gone, just let it go and be with what's next. Yeah. Okay, just one more and then we can all have some tea. Sorry. Yes. How can you have infinite respect if it's not met by mutuality. Uh, you don't, I understand, I understand. There's a very important part of our training. Uh, if you read Shantideva, Guide, um, I've forgotten it, Guide for the Bodhisattva Way of Life. There's a chapter on patience. But let me give you the essence of it. The natural thing would be to not have respect. In other words, I hit you, so you hit me. An, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay. Spiritual work, to me, worth the salt, is breaking that circuit. If all that we do is, if I, if I, if I break your teeth, you take out my eye, uh, then let's not be surprised when we walk around, why is everyone so ugly? They've got broken teeth and they're blind. <laughs> you know, we're doing it to each other. Okay, so how do you break the circuit? The circuit is, see, infinite respect doesn't come from deciding that you're going to be infinite respectful. Mainly, it comes from seeing how limited your respect is. Okay, now, the training that I'm referring to uh, uh, in Shantideva's Guide for the Bodhisattva Way of Life, uh, the Dalai Lama, in scattered through his talks, has uh, given us a very good understanding of that. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know that uh, he is in exile from Tibet because it's basically genocide going on in Tibet. Okay, but the Dalai Lama... 
has said in a number of places his practice has been to forgive the Tibetans. But not being goofy. In other words, he's trying to get his country back and he's doing everything he can. But he'll say things, it's very hard on newspaper reporters. I remember one TV reporter uh, being annoyed because he wasn't putting down the Chinese communists. This was some years ago when communists exist, existed. You know. um, and finally, the, the, the person said, I don't understand. These people have destroyed your, your people, they've destroyed your religion, you've lost your home, you're all, all these refugees, and uh, how can it be that you don't have uh, real resentment and anger towards the Chinese? And he said, well, it's bad enough that they, they stole my country. I don't want them to steal my mind. Or Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh has worked very, very hard in forgiving everyone. I was at a retreat with him where uh, it was called Healing the Wounds of War. And it was mainly uh, veterans of war, mainly Vietnam. And uh, these veterans, of course, felt terrible about different things they had done to the Vietnamese. Th this particular group of veterans. There are many who don't, but these did. And at the end of it, he had us all sit in a circle. And he said very clearly, it took him a long, he said, it took him a lot of sitting and walking. But he has, he has forgiven Americans for what has happened. And he went <clears throat> and he hugged this big Marine uh, who could not, talk to, could not be in the same room with children for over 20 years because he had accidentally killed a lot of children. Uh, and so uh, this little Vietnamese man gave him this incredible hug. And he said, I, forg you know, I forgive you. Can you forgive me? And then everyone started hugging everyone. Okay, so spiritual life is, 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 it is going against the grain. Yeah. Okay, why don't we get some tea? Could we have a moment's silence first? Thank you. Uh, to the gentleman with, who has some psychic abilities, just some things that I've learned over the years. I've, I myself am not psychic, but I've had friends who are. The capacity can be very helpful to people for your sake, from the point of view of this practice, is to uh, be very careful about, you, 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 do you get flattery, compliments, and a lot of uh, stuff from people because you can... Uh, I don't, I keep, um, Oh, good for you. Then you're safe. Okay. But, you know, it would be to see if the, the capacity itself is neutral. It's nothing wrong with it. But see if, if it becomes something for the ego to build a fortress out of, at which point it's not doing you any good, even though it may help be helping others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.